You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When I started doing research for this podcast, the intention was to gather information about Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. Cabeza de Vaca's journey through southwestern North America in the early 1500s is a great tale, but the beginnings of his story is intertwined and really dominated by a man named Panfilo de Narvaez. Narvaez was a Spanish conquistador, but more importantly, he was a bad conquistador. More often than not, these guys get lost in history. They set off on some wild expedition and never are heard from again. And in reality, Narvaez did exactly that. He went out looking for gold and never came back. However, some of his men did return, and one of those was the aforementioned Cabeza de Vaca. And Cabeza de Vaca's amazing story is really a continuation of a story that Narvaez began. I contemplated making Narvaez's story part of the Cabeza de Vaca podcast, but after looking at Narvaez's life, I thought there was enough to justify an entire podcast just on him, even if it's not a story of success and accomplishment. So this episode of Explorers is going to be about the life of Panfilo de Narvaez. Then I'll follow up with the life of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, sort of an extension of the Narvaez podcast. Okay, with all that said, it is time to get going. And to start, I'm going to highlight the usual caveat here, asking for apologies on my horrible Spanish. I know I do this most every podcast, but I sort of just cringe when I hear myself saying names in other languages, and I know that others are probably cringing as well. So forgive me. That aside, let's talk Panfilo de Narvaez. Narvaez was born in Spain. The year of his birth is disputed, as some records indicate it was 1470, while others say it was 1478. He was from a well-to-do, probably noble family, and he would enter military service as a youth. He was described as being tall and having an authoritative personality. Other than that, there's not a lot known about the man's younger years. Narvaez would make his way into the history books as a player in the conquest of Jamaica and Cuba in the early 1500s. So, backing up a moment, Christopher Columbus had been the first European to come to Jamaica, then called Santiago by the Spanish, in 1494. But the Spanish had first settled in Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. They wouldn't turn their eyes to Jamaica until 1509, when an expedition under Juan de Esquivel set sail for the island. The first Spanish settlement would be founded later that year at St. Anne's Bay. Esquivel is known for leading the Igwe massacre in Hispaniola in 1503. There, the Spanish slaughtered the native peoples after they resisted as troops. Men, women, and children were hanged and knifed to death. Others had their hands and feet cut off. Enslavement followed for those that survived. It was a brutal display, and unfortunately all too common during this time period, as the Spanish had come for gold and profit, 
and native Indians were just in the way, or a tool to extract that profit. Panfilo de Narvaez would be an officer in Esquivel's force when they went to Jamaica in 1509. Not much is known about the conquest of the island, but the combination of warfare and disease would effectively wipe out the native population. Narvaez would do a commendable job, at least in the eyes of the Spanish, because in 1511 he would be given a role in the conquest of Cuba, the next island the Spanish had set their sights on. The commander of this expedition was Diego Valesquez de Cuellar, a relative of Narvaez's. Narvaez would be given command of some units on the eastern end of the island, and it is here that he solidified his reputation as a particularly cruel and merciless man. In 1513, Narvaez led his troops to the village of Caunau. According to Bartolome de las Casas, a Dominican friar who was with Narvaez at the time, there were upwards of 3,000 native Indians in the village. They came out and presented food to the Spanish and squatted down as was their custom, a way to show their defeat. Narvaez and his men would proceed to go on a rampage, killing hundreds, maybe thousands of men, women, and children. De Las Casas protested, but Narvaez only gloated about the killings. He told the priest, quote, How does your honor like what these our Spaniards have done? End quote. The priest, De Las Casas, replied, quote, That I command you and them to the devil. End quote. The subjugation of Cuba was brutal. Thousands would die under Spanish steel. Thousands more would die working in the mines or in the fields of the Spanish lords. Disease would kill the rest, and it would turn Cuba into a wasteland and force the Spanish to begin importing slaves to the island. As a reward for his participation in the conquest, Narvaez was given extensive land grants and public offices in Cuba. The man now fades from the public eye for a few years, but he will reemerge in 1520. But before we go to 1520, let's take a step back to 1518. Hernan Cortez had been granted a charter to go to Mexico by the governor of Cuba, Diego Valesquez. Cortez had his eyes on the mighty Aztec Empire. But before Cortez could leave with his expedition, his charter was revoked by the governor, as the governor did not trust the independent-minded Cortez. Cortez ignored the revocation and headed to Mexico anyhow in February of 1519. Later that year, Cortes would dismiss Valesquez's authority and put himself under the direct command of the King of Spain. Well, Governor Valesquez wasn't just going to take this lying down. He declared Cortes a traitor and, in 1520, sent a force of over a thousand men to Mexico, under the command of his trusted ally and relative, Panfilo de Narvaez. Despite greatly outnumbering Cortes, Narvaez would get trounced in Mexico. After landing his force, he couldn't dislodge a garrison of soldiers loyal to Cortes at Veracruz. Thus, he headed to the town of Sempuala. On May 27, 1520, Cortez, outnumbered and outgunned, surprised Narvaez by marching his men through a driving rain. He seized Narvaez's artillery and horses, and essentially trapped Narvaez in Sempuala's main temple. He then lured many of Narvaez's troops over to his side, with promises of riches from the Aztec Empire. In the end, Narvaez was defeated, and he would be badly wounded in the fighting, losing an eye. It was a humiliating defeat. Narvaez had not just lost the battle and his eye. He had lost his entire command to Cortes, who would go on to become one of the most famous conquistadors in history. So, Narvaez would spend two years in prison in Veracruz, and not be released until Cortes was in complete command of Mexico, both in fact as well as in the eyes of the Spanish crown. After his release, he would sail to Spain and plot his return. Over the next few years, word of the riches of Mexico and the Aztec Empire came to Spain. Opportunists emerged, eager to be the next man to find and conquer a land in the New World, brimming with gold and jewels. 
and Panfilo de Narvaez was just like all the other wannabe Cortezes. He seems to have gotten it into his head that Florida was his ticket to riches. And despite his humiliation in Mexico at the hands of Cortez, he appears to have had some sway at the Spanish court. Thus, on December 25, 1526, King Charles granted Narvaez a charter to claim the area that is now the Gulf Coast of the United States for Spain. Narvaez was given a year to gather his army. His orders were to establish at least two towns of a hundred people each, and garrison two additional forts anywhere along the coast. Like most of the expeditions to the New World during this era, it would be financed by private investors. Narvaez used his own riches to seed the expedition, but he would recruit many other willing investors, the promise of riches such as those acquired from the Aztecs luring them into the fold. So Narvaez had his charter as well as his financing. Next, he had to assemble his army. For his staff, the Spanish crown would appoint Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca as the treasurer and second-in-command. But Cabeza de Vaca was not Narvaez's appointee. Cabeza de Vaca's role would be to serve as the eyes and ears and the bookkeeper of the expedition on behalf of the Spanish crown. Thus, over the next couple of years, you will find times where Narvaez and Cabeza de Vaca are at odds. In the next podcast, we will dive deeper into Cabeza de Vaca's younger years, but for now, we just need to know that he was born to minor nobility. He would make a name for himself as a soldier and politician, and for this expedition, it would be his job to look out for the interests of the Spanish crown. I also want to note that Cabeza de Vaca would later pen an account of this expedition, so what we know about it is primarily drawn from his writings. Now, back to the expedition. There would be some other interesting people involved, including an Aztec prince who was named Don Pedro by the Spanish, and there would be five priests, led by a Franciscan friar, Padre Juan Suarez. Narvaez would assemble a force of about 600 men for his expedition to the New World, including 450 soldiers. The rest were sailors and slaves and even wives, as married men could not travel to the New World without their spouses. But let us be clear about things. While Narvaez had orders to establish colonies and forts, the lure was plunder for these men. They had come for gold and glory, but mostly gold. The Narvaez expedition, which is how history has remembered this affair, departed Spain on May 27, 1527. As with many Spanish expeditions to the New World, the fleet would stop in the Canary Islands to take on additional provisions before making the long voyage to the Caribbean. Narvaez's fleet reached the town of Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola in August of 1527. It was here that the fleet first heard of the fate of a recent expedition led by Lucas Vasquez de Ayan. In 1526, Ayan had led 600 colonists up the North American coast with the intention of establishing a colony. Ion would select a spot in present-day Georgia to start his colony, although the exact location has never been identified. It would be the first European colony in what is the present-day United States. But Ion's settlement would last only three months. The colonists quickly ran out of food and provisions, and thus malnutrition, sickness, and disease set in. They also encountered problems with the local native Indians. Ion himself would die before the year was out, along with many of the colonists. The survivors, which numbered only about 150 of the original 600 settlers, would return to Hispaniola that winter. So here's Narvaez touting the future of his expedition, talking about gold and great times. But in the streets of Santo Domingo, there was a different story being told by the survivors of the Ion expedition. There was no gold, there was only hunger and conflict and hardship. Thus Narvaez's men began to desert. Within a month, more than 140 would take a powder. The expedition would sail to Cuba in September, and since Narvaez had a home and family on the island, his plan was to use his connections to add supplies, as well as men and horses. 
Once in Cuba, Narvaez would strike a deal to purchase some horses from a wealthy friend. The horses were located at the town of Trinidad in Cuba. He dispatched Cabeza de Vaca in two ships to get the horses. Cabeza de Vaca would reach Trinidad on October 30th. He would get the horses, as well as add some additional provisions and crew. But then a hurricane struck, and both ships would sink. Sixty men were killed, as well as twenty of the horses. All of the supplies that had been purchased were lost as well. Cabeza de Vaca and about thirty men would survive the storm, because they had been ashore at the time it had struck. They would later rejoin Narvaez. So, with his expedition already in the hold two ships and a couple hundred men, Narvaez decided it was time to regroup. He would spend the next four months recruiting new men, buying horses and supplies, plus additional ships to add to the fleet. By mid-February, Narvaez had 400 men and 80 horses. The winter depleted much of the fleet's supplies, so Narvaez sent one of his new ships to Havana to obtain more provisions. Narvaez and his five ships, which included four ships, likely caravels or carracks, and one brigantine, gathered at Cienfuegos before their departure. One of the new recruits into the expedition was a local pilot by the name of Morello. The man had claimed to have extensive knowledge of the Gulf Coast. However, two days after departing Cienfuegos, the entire fleet ran aground on some shoals off the coast of Cuba. They would be stuck there for two to three weeks, depleting the fleet's already meager provisions. Finally, in the second week of March, a storm swelled the seas, freeing the ships. Narvaez and his fleet battled storms as they rounded the western tip of Cuba and made for Havana. The intention was to meet up with the ship which had departed for the city the previous month. But Mother Nature had other plans. Another storm blew the fleet into the Gulf, and Narvaez elected to skip a return to Cuba and press forward with landing his men on the continent. On April 12, 1528, the fleet spotted land north of what is now Tampa Bay. The pilot, Morello, told Narvaez that a great harbor was not far away, so the fleet headed south toward this supposed harbor. I want to mention that you can see a map marking the travels of the Narvaez expedition on our website, explorerspodcast.com. You might want to take a look at it just to get an idea of where we're going on this trip. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On April 14th, the fleet would come to Boco Ciega Bay, just north of Tampa Bay. The Spanish saw signs of civilization here, including earthen mounds and buildings. The next day, Narvaez would land 300 men near what is today known as the Jungle Prada site in St. Petersburg, Florida. The Spanish traded beads and bells and cloth for fresh fish and meat with the local Indians. It was not a bad start after months and months of delays. But, of course, the goodwill would last all of one whole day, because the next morning Narvaez gathered together his men and the natives and read out loud the requerimiento, or the requirement of 1513. The requerimiento was a declaration that the Spanish would read aloud, in Spanish, to the native peoples of the New World, telling them that their lands and property now belong to the Spanish crown by order of the Pope. Oh yes, and they would have to become Catholics. If they refused, they were enemies of God and Spain. The requerimiento was usually greeted with a mixture of confusion and outright hostility, and the reaction from the locals in this situation was no different. Some ran off, some got angry, and others told the Spanish to just leave. After this, Narvez ordered Morello to sail the Brigantine, which was the smallest of the fleet's vessels, south to the great harbor that he talked about, 
If he was unsuccessful, he was to proceed to Cuba, and there he was to get the other ship, the one that had been sent back in February for supplies, and bring it back to Florida. So, Narvaez had landed his men in Florida. The next job was to find loot, because that is what conquistadors did. Well, maybe not find loot, but at least look for loot. Narvaez found that the local natives had little gold, but they did tell him the story of a wealthy nation to the north, the Apalachi, up near what is today the Florida Panhandle. And here we go. The Spanish are now falling for the old city of gold trick. They come to a native village. They say, give us your gold. The natives reply, hey, we don't have any gold. But you know who does? Just go that way, way, way far away from us. They're loaded with gold. Good luck. And of course, the Spanish fall for it every time. So Narvaez set aside any ideas of building a colony or fort as he had gold on his brain. On May 1st, 1528, Narvaez decided to split up his force. He would lead an army of 300 men north, including 40 horses, toward Apalachi. His remaining 100 men would sail up the coast and eventually meet up with the land force. Cabeza de Vaca, Narvaez's second-in-command, argued against the plan, saying it was foolish to break up the expedition at such an early stage. He said they needed a secure and populated base at a harbor, plus they needed more food and provisions. Also, heading off into the interior without an interpreter was just downright stupid. But Cabeza de Vaca would be outvoted by the rest of the officers. Like Narvaez, they wanted to go searching for gold. Narvaez wanted Cabeza de Vaca to lead the naval force, but Cabeza de Vaca refused the assignment, as it was a matter of honor, he later wrote. He said that since he had argued against the overland excursion, he didn't want anyone to question his bravery. So he went with the land force. We should note that Narvaez's expedition was low on supplies, particularly food. Cabeza de Vaca said that each man had two pounds of biscuits and half a pound of bacon, nothing more. In reality, the wise move would have been to first establish a base of operations. The Spanish needed not only a safe place for the men, but a stable source of food, and a harbor to protect the ships from the area's many storms. But as we have seen, arrogance, combined with lust for gold, is a powerful thing, and wisdom wasn't Narvaez's strongest suit here. So Narvaez and his men would set out overland. They would march two weeks before coming to an Indian village north of the Willacoochee River in central Florida. There they attacked the natives, enslaving some and helping themselves to the village supply of food, primarily corn. Narvaez sent men down the river to the gulf, but there was no sign of the fleet. So Narvaez ordered his men to continue their march north toward Apalachi. On June 18th, the Spanish came to the lands of the Tamuqua, a collection of 35 chieftains located in northern Florida. The Tamuqua greeted the Spanish cautiously, but not with hostility. One of the chiefs was pleased to hear the Spanish were heading toward the Apalachi, as they were his enemies. The Tamuqua would provide food for the Spanish, something they desperately needed, and the Spanish would give the Indians bells and beads as gifts. However, Narvaez and the Spanish would soon grow cautious when they found a deserted Tamuqua village. The expedition was worried the locals were waiting to ambush them. Narvaez managed to capture several of the Tamuqua, and using them as guides, was able to successfully exit their lands. On June 25th, the Narvaez expedition entered Apalachi territory. They attacked the first village that they came upon, a place with 40 homes. They captured several natives and a large amount of corn, but there was none of the gold that the men had hoped for. And it wasn't long before the Spanish were at war with the Apalachi. For the next 25 days, the natives would use a form of guerrilla warfare against the Spanish, firing arrows at the invaders, then melting into the background. The Spanish dared not follow. Also, the Spanish guns were slow, and the natives learned that they could get off five or six arrows, while the Spanish reloaded their guns and crossbows. 
Cabeza de Vaca reported that the Indians' bows were strong, able to pierce a man's body, even shooting through the Spaniards' armor. He also said that the Indians were accurate with their bows. This claim was backed up when Hernando de Soto would explore Florida more than a decade later. He would report that the Indian arrows could go through two layers of chainmail. One great advantage that the Spanish did have was their horses, which terrified the natives. However, the horses quickly lost their military value when not in open terrain, and Florida was a morass of swamps and forest. Narvaez would send out scouting expeditions in search of the rich Apalachee cities, but they would all return empty-handed. Soon he realized there was no gold and no riches. The Apalachee were an agricultural people, and the great treasure they possessed was the corn that they harvested. With his men weakening by the day from the constant fighting, as well as from sickness, and his supplies dwindling, Narvaez decided to head south, toward the coast. The natives who the Spanish had captured said there was a village, called Alt, near the coast that had a lot of food. So Narvaez and his men set out to the south, across a swamp. And for the next two weeks, the Spanish slogged their way toward the coast, fighting the Apalachee with each step. Cabeza de Vaca reported that he was injured by an arrow during this trek. The Spanish eventually found the village of Alt, but it was abandoned. There was, however, some much-needed food. At this point, the Narvaez expedition was in a desperate situation. Many of the men were sick and wounded. Narvaez himself was ill, and there was talk of cannibalism. There was also mutiny in the air, as some of the cavalry in the expedition plotted to take their horses and abandon the rest of the party. Cabeza de Vaca, however, got wind of the plans and went to the men and convinced them they were better off staying together. In early August, the beleaguered expedition would reach the Gulf Coast, likely around present-day St. Mark's, Florida, just south of Tallahassee. But where do you go from here? Cuba was six, seven hundred miles away and across the water, and there were no ships. Also, there is little food, and illness was rampant. A full third of the men were so sick at this point that they could barely function. The lack of a base of operations was coming back to haunt Narvaez. There was simply no safe place to go to. Instead, the expedition would have to weigh the various options. They could have headed south along the coast and hoped their ships would find them, but that was a dangerous gamble. There was no guarantee the ships were in the area, and they may have headed to Cuba already. And even if they hadn't, no one knew how long it would take for them to be discovered. By then, starvation might take the entire troop. Finally, one of the men suggested making boats to sail to Mexico. They could reforge some of their weapons and armor so that they could make the necessary tools to build the boats. The boats would not have to sail on the open sea, just along the coast. With no better options, on August 4th, 1528, the plan was hatched. A forge was constructed out of a log using deer skins for the bellows. The Spanish proceeded to make hammers and saws and nails out of their iron gear. Caulking was made from the pitch of pine trees. Shirts were sewn together for sails. The expedition's horses were killed one by one, primarily for food, but for materials as well. The horsehair was used to braid ropes, and the skins converted into water storage bags. To the Spanish noblemen, the sacrifice of their horses was a great one. A good war horse was valued and respected by the Spanish nobility. In honor of the animals, the Spanish named the bay where they were building their boats the Bay of Horses. To sustain themselves, the men not only ate their horses, but they raided the local Indian villages. Unfortunately, the attacks led to retaliation from the natives. On one day, in sight of the main camp, the Apalachee attacked a group of Spanish collecting shellfish, killing ten men. Finally, on September 20th, the Spanish were ready. At this point, they had lost about 60 of their 300 men due to sickness and warfare. Cabeza de Vaca reported that they had constructed five boats. The boats had a shallow draft and were about 33 feet long with a sail and oars, but they were more raft than ship. 
As noted, the vessels were not made for the open sea, but for sailing along the coast. Each would hold about 50 men, and they would be so tightly packed the men could barely move, and there were no seamen or pilots or navigators to help with the sailing. I also want to mention that the Spanish had a really poor sense of distance. They did not think Mexico was that far off, when in reality they would have to sail well over a thousand miles to reach Spanish territory. The voyage along the coast would be a brutal one for the expedition, as thirst and starvation began to claim more and more men. The waterskins they had made rotted and became worthless. Food was difficult to find. When possible, men would walk along the coast due to the cramped quarters. Also, it was common for the boats to come to the shore in the evenings, allowing the men to stretch out and sleep rather than to scrunch together on the raft. But such luxuries were not always feasible as the land was filled with dangers, such as poisonous snakes, alligators, and hostile natives. After 30 days sailing, the boats were stranded on an island waiting out a storm. It lasted five days. The men would become desperate and start to drink salt water, and five of them would die of thirst. Desperate now, the flotilla approached an Indian village along the coast. The natives offered water and fish, but then they attacked the Spanish. Narvaez was wounded in the fighting. Cabeza de Vaca reported that he and 50 men were attacked three times in a single night, and everyone was wounded in some manner. They were saved when the Indians finally ran out of arrows, and the Spanish were able to drive off the attackers. In another encounter with the natives, two members of the expedition were taken hostage. Narvaez would be forced to leave them when fighting broke out. Finally, as the expedition was getting weaker and weaker from the long months with little food or water, Narvaez basically abandoned his men. The Spanish were in the area where the Mississippi River enters the Gulf of Mexico. The currents into the ocean are powerful here, and the Spanish struggled to keep their small boats from being forced out to sea, especially when the winds from the north swept down on the area. Cabeza de Vaca said that Narvaez had the best boat. His men were the healthiest and most robust. Over the course of several days, the boats, however, became more and more separated in the strong currents, and Cabeza de Vaca begged Narvaez to keep the small flotilla together. The stronger boats would be able to help the weaker ones. But Narvaez refused. He told Cabeza de Vaca, quote, that each of us should do what seemed best to save his life, end quote. Thus, Narvaez essentially left everyone to their own devices. Narvaez would allow the other four boats to fall behind, and eventually he would sail out of sight of the rest of his men. It would be a permanent separation. Now, Cabeza de Vaca and the others never saw Narvaez again, but they did learn his fate, which we will get to in a minute. But for now, let's just stay with Cabeza de Vaca and the remainder of the Spanish force. Shortly after Narvaez ditched his fellow Spaniards, the other vessels struggled to get back to land. For days they would fight the currents, trying to reach land. Food was nearly gone, the weather was cold, and ultimately a storm hit. In all of this, two of the four rafts would be lost. They may have been swept out to sea, or perhaps they came ashore at some point. One source says that one of the rafts made landfall, but all of the men, who were so weak they offered no resistance, were killed by the Indians. In the end, the men from the two boats were never heard from again. Cabeza de Vaca said that his boat struggled terribly to keep afloat. The men were barely able to do anything, as they were so weak from thirst and hunger. Cabeza de Baca's boat, as well as one other one, would manage to find landfall, historians believe, at an island near present-day Galveston, Texas. Between the two boats, there were roughly 80 survivors. The date was November 6, 1528. The Spanish named the island the Isle of Misfortune. Cabeza de Vaca said that he and his men drank rainwater and roasted some corn that they had found. Here is what he said about his hunger. Quote, I can say for myself that I had not eaten anything but parched corn since the previous May and sometimes I had to eat it raw. 
Although the horses were slaughtered while we were building the boats, I was never able to eat them, and I had eaten fish fewer than ten times. End quote. This was a shattered group of men. The local Indians would find the beleaguered Spanish, but there would be no confrontation. The Spanish were in no shape for fighting. Cabeza de Vaca said that of the men on his boat, only six could even stand. The Indians would bring the Spanish food and water, and they would eventually recover. The Spanish would try and continue their voyage in their boats, but one would capsize and attempt to get out to sea, and three men would drown. And the other boat, which was heavily damaged in the storm that ascended to the island, sank when they tried to sail it. So Cabeza de Vaca and about 80 men were stranded, and not many would live the next few months. Sickness, disease, and starvation would claim all but 15 of the Spanish that winter. Some of the men turned to cannibalism to survive. The remaining men, including Cabeza de Vaca, would be captured by the local Indians. Within a few years, only a handful would be alive. But those remaining men have a fascinating story, a story that I will detail in our next podcast on the life of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, the leader of the surviving Spaniards. So let's jump back and talk about the fate of Panfilo de Narvaez, the leader of the Narvaez expedition. It would take some time, but Cabeza de Vaca would learn of the fate of Narvaez. It seems that Narvaez had, at one point, put his men ashore for the night, something we noted was not uncommon. Narvaez had stayed on the ship, along with two men. During the night, a strong wind, perhaps a storm, carried the boat out to sea, and with only three men on the boat, they would have been captive to the strong winds and the powerful currents. Panfilo de Narvaez would be pushed out to sea and never heard from again. The men from the boat who had been on shore were stranded, and they would slowly die from starvation. Eventually, they turned on each other, even killing the man who had replaced Narvaez. The men were then turned to cannibalism to survive. In time, only one man was left, Hernando de Esquivel. He would be killed by the natives, but not before coming across a survivor from another of the boats, a man named Figueroa. Esquivel passed on the details of Narvaez's demise to Figueroa, who in turn told the tale to Cabeza de Baca. So Panfilo de Narvaez was dead, lost at sea. His expedition had been a disaster. There were no colonies established or forts built, and there certainly were no riches to be found. Before we wrap this podcast, I do want to jump back and recount the fate of the ships in Narvaez's fleet. If you recall, Morello had taken a brigantine to search out a harbor. Well, after his little excursion, he came back to find Narvaez and his men gone. So he had continued on to Havana, and there he had picked up the expedition's fifth ship and returned to Tampa Bay. So with these two ships at Tampa Bay, let's turn our attention to the three ships that had been ordered to sail up the Gulf Coast. It turns out these ships had done just that, but they had never found any signs of Narvaez and his men. I mean, it had been a risky proposition from the start. The ships never really knew exactly when or where Narvaez was suddenly going to show up. They had sailed up the coast looking for the expedition, but no luck. Which is not a shocker, since Narvaez and his troops had traveled mostly inland for over three months. Thinking them lost, the ships returned to Tampa Bay, meeting up with Morello and the other two ships. The five vessels would search for Narvaez for months, but ultimately they gave up on the man and headed to Mexico. So, back to Panfilo de Narvaez. To me, the man represents the very worst aspects of an explorer, not that he ever really had a desire to explore. Narvaez was ruthless and authoritative, not to mention greedy. The comments of the priest, Bartolomo de las Casas, indicates the man seemed to take pleasure in his cruelty, and that is never a good sign. And even before his 1527 expedition, the guy had not really been that successful, unless you count slaughtering helpless natives as being a success. Narvaez failed miserably in Mexico, being outwitted by Cortes and abandoned by his own men. 
and then his own expedition displayed an immense lack of imagination, not to mention judgment. Narvaez continually made poor decisions, sailing without his fifth ship, going places without adequate supplies, separating his ships from his main force, and probably most importantly, he never established a feasible base of operations, a place where his ships and men could find a safe haven. It was a recipe for disaster. Also, once Narvaez actually got down to business, he showed little tact or skill or sound judgment. He let his greed get the better of him, and he took the bait and let his expedition get lured north, looking for his mythical city of gold. And his dealings with the native peoples really set him apart from other successful conquistadors, such as Balboa and Cortez. The latter two men were shrewd in their dealing with the natives. They cultivated allies, exploited weaknesses, and realized it was a fool's errand to try and do everything on their own. Narvaez was the opposite, threatening and bullying from the start. He created no safe haven and cultivated no allies. He made his expedition a running target for the Indians of the region. I do want to reiterate that much of what we know about the Narvaez expedition comes from Cabeza de Vaca, who didn't like Narvaez and pretty much cast him as a villain. Thus, we need to look at Cabeza de Vaca's tale with some caution. But even then, if you examine what we know about the rest of Narvaez's life, his actions in Cuba and Jamaica and Mexico, it's not a pretty picture, and it makes his actions, as described by Cabeza de Vaca, totally within his character. I think it's pretty clear that I don't like Narvaez. I'm not really sure who could like him. He seems to be a pretty despicable person, vain and cruel and lacking in good judgment and vision. That's not the kind of guy you want leading men into the unknown. In most cases, guys like Narvaez just get lost in history. As we said earlier, they march off into the wild and they never come back. But the Narvaez expedition is unique and that it was really the start of one of the great stories of exploration the eight-year journey of Alvaro Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. And as noted earlier, Cabeza de Vaca will be the focus of our next podcast, so I hope you look forward to it. Otherwise, that is it, the life of Spanish conquistador Panfilo de Narvaez, an example of a really crappy explorer and a really crappy human being. So join us next time for a continuation of his expedition as we catch up with Alvaro Nunez Cabeza de Vaca and his epic journey home. In the meantime, at explorerspodcast.com, you'll find a link to Cabeza de Vaca's writings. They are available free online, as well as some other interesting resources. And finally, if you get the chance, head on over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed. We would appreciate it if you could write a review or give a rating to Explorers. Doing so is a great way to show your support, and it helps raise the podcast profile. Again, thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. We will see you next time for the podcast on Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.